Well, good morning, New Life Church. It is good to see you in the house of God. I mentioned this in the first service, but I never took it for granted getting to gather together with believers here at church. And I know for a fact after 2020, I will never again take it for granted. I think from now, for, like for weeks, you're going to hear me saying, it's so good to see you. I missed you so much. Doesn't it feel good to be back in the house of God this morning next to other believers, learning together? Online is great. I am so glad we had that resource. I think our team did a great job pivoting during a really hard time. But man, there is nothing like being face to face. That's right, give them a hand. They did a great job. It's good to see you and connect. We are continuing this morning in the book of James. If this is your first time here with us, you're, you're joining us as we have, we're several weeks into working our way through the book of James. Um, and James is a letter that was written to the New Testament church. Um, and James took this time to address issues that he was seeing within the church challenging believers to live transformed lives. So in week one, Pastor Brent spoke to us about temptations and desires and the difference between a desire that is holy and a desire that has been conflated and twisted. And Pastor Ty has spoken about having a faith that was real and genuine and not, and not formulated on something insubstantial or fake, that does not be deceived into having a faith that does not come from God. And then last week, Pastor Brent again came and spoke about watching our tongue. All of these common thread things have to do with teaching people who were already believers how to continue to live transformed lives. And today, as we get into chapter four, that will continue. James is determined to root out an issue that he sees in the church. So now no longer is he offering um, suggestions like even, the, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make that sound like it was minor. No longer is he saying, hey, you should watch your tongue or your tone. All these things sort of build together and he has seen conflict within the church. And it's not an us versus them type conflict. He wasn't saying, hey, church, you are at odds with the world and this is how we fix it. He was saying, church, everywhere, because he was writing to the diaspora, the Jewish Christian scattered church all over. So remember that he's not speaking to a specific congregation. There are other books of the Bible that were written to regions. So this is to everybody in the known church at the time. You have conflict amongst yourselves, and it's causing real problems. It's making it so that you no longer look like you're transformed. It is turning off people to the gospel. There is no difference between you who proclaim to be a Christian and your neighbor who does not, who may be seeking and is not drawn to you because you are not showing them what it looks like to be transformed. He has a serious bone to pick with the church. He's going to use some language that is shocking and it's going to sort of I think because we're going to look at how James not only was addressing that church, but our church today, some of the language that he's going to use is going to cause a little bit of your spirit self, your heart, to kind of push back against that a little bit. Well, that's not me. I don't have that problem. You don't know what's going on in my life. X, Y, and Z is contributing to my response in this way, so that doesn't apply to me. So James can just put down your pencil and your harsh language because I'm separate from that. I know that that might be some of your response because it was kind of my response too as I was reading this. I really wanted to be like, God, I don't know what you're trying to teach me, but I don't have this problem. But maybe other people do, so let me just share about that. If I can invite you, if you feel something in yourself to sort of get defensive about what James wants to say, can I invite you to sort of settle that down a little bit and hear about, hear through the heart of what James is trying to teach us so that we can resolve conflict? Because where there is conflict, there isn't peace, right? There's an absence of peace. There's discord and discontentment and anger. What can we do to resolve conflict and move forward in peace? What does that look like? 
as I mentioned earlier, James is going to use some heated language. And I feel like, you know, at first when I read it, I was like, James, whoa, man, this is really harsh. Um, he feels really passionate about this because he loves the church. James considered himself a pastor to the church. And if there's ever anything that you feel really excitable about, whether it's good or bad, it's not likely that you're going to use, like, really flowery language or be an allegory and just sort of, like, talk sweetly about this thing you're excited about. All exclamation points, right? Your blood pressure is going to rise. Your face is going to get flushed. You have something to share. You have something to root out. And this is a common theme through here. And I know that this is relatable to you because I live in Oregon duck country. And if there's one thing that we can all agree upon, it's that football season largely becomes an obsession throughout the valley. Is that not true? Yeah. I mean, that was a really tame response. <laughs> I am married to one of you. My husband... <laughs> <laughs> I love sharing this story. I've waited so long to share this story. This is a true story. There is no exaggeration here. My husband, Brent, here in the front row, uh, he loves Oregon football so much that when we were trying to pick a wedding date 14 years ago, we got married on a Sunday in November because the Ducks hadn't yet released their fall schedule. And what if there was a conflict in the schedule? He couldn't have that. So we ended up getting married on a Sunday. So when I say that I know that we feel passionate about stuff, I live in it. We are you. So uh, I always, he's like, I regret giving her the mic already. <laughs> so here we have James seeing things in the church that needs to be addressed, and he's ready for it. And I think, truly, part of the reason why James calls the church out so hard here is because he is one of them. He is not an outsider speaking in. This letter is written to the converted Jewish church. James was a Jew who converted to Christianity. Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. And like Pastor Brent said a couple weeks ago, if you can convince your brother that you're the Savior, you're the real deal, right? So James is speaking to the Jewish people who are now converted to Christianity, so he feels a kinship with them. He understands how they think and how they respond to things, and it gives real weight and gravity because they receive this letter, and they're not hearing it from an outsider. They're hearing it from someone who is just like them. And so I want you, as we are reading through James chapter 4, to notice some parallels between what he talks about to that church and how that applies to our church, the global church, the capital C church, not just here but everywhere, how that can apply to our church. Because he's going to address conflict within the body. And we know, we know what conflict within the Christian church has looked like in recent seasons. Do we not? We have been through a lot of situations that has caused some real division and hurt and loose words. People have called out the validity of other people's relationship with Christ. What a serious thing. What kind of anger is behind that that has caused people to call out the validity of someone else's being saved? They were experiencing that in the New Testament. We experience that today. The Word of God is living. It is inspired. So I don't want you to think of this chapter as just being for a church that existed nearly 2,000 years ago. But this is a word for today. So let's move into 4 verse 1. What causes fights and conflict among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? What causes fights and conflicts among you? What does James say? What does he say is the source? Call it out. He says it's you. He doesn't say it's someone else or a situation or something that happened in your past or something else that someone misspoke. He is saying, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? This word desire is the same word that's used in chapter 1. And Pastor Brent did a really good job of breaking down the original language of that. And in this context, the word desire is translated to lustful desires, selfish desires, things that uh, have been conflated to no longer resemble the good thing they were meant to be and instead now look like something that has been twisted and torqued to merely resemble that thing, but it's a trick. And we have those desires within us. And James is saying that is the root 
of conflicts and fights. Selfishness, our you-ness, causes conflict in our relationships. When was the last time you were in conflict with somebody? This is common. We all feel conflict of, of varying degrees. A lot of us are parents in this, in this congregation this morning. I saw people come in with their kids. You know that song, Easy Like a Sunday Morning? Whoever wrote that was not a parent trying to get to church on time. <laughs> Sunday is full of conflict of a light degree, right? I mean, come on. I just want to be like, hey, let's rewrite that and make it real because we want to get to church on time. But conflict also can produce extreme amounts of hurt and division. Can it not? Conflict, there's a whole mountain of things that conflict covers. And in the church, it's causing real chaos and division. James tells us that the source of our conflict starts from within us, from our own unmet expectations. There are things that we want that we're not getting, and so we're pushing back and we're lashing out. Conflict comes from our bad attitudes. Conflict comes from not exercising our own self-discipline. That was a real zinger for me. I've been in situations where I've grown lax on things or uh, wasn't managing my time or my resources, and so things sort of fell apart. And along came someone innocent who had nothing to do with that, and they kind of bumped into that, and I lashed out irrationally because I had failed to exercise self-discipline or priority, and I caused conflict in a relationship that, where there shouldn't have been one. I have been responsible for that conflict. We lash out in frustration. We have selfish desires. And humans know a lot about selfishness, don't we? We do. If you know me, you know I love a baby. I mean, I really love babies. I've got two boys. I love them as they're growing. They're, uh, one is in second grade, one is in sixth grade, so they're bigger, and I love the season they're, that they're in. But I am a capital baby person. I'm like a heat-seeking missile. If there's a baby in this building, I'm going to cut through a crowd with some gimme hands. I want that baby. I want to hold it. I think they're so cute. Pastor Ty and Rachel over here are expecting a baby here soon. And I think maybe aside from their own family looking for updates, I might ask you the most about how this baby is doing. They're like, same as last week. <laughs> Feeling good. Still growing. You'll know when we have it. <laughs> I want a baby. I love babies. And Brent's like, please just give her all the babies so she doesn't ask me for more babies. Right? So <laughs> we're sort of like working that way. But despite how cute babies are, uh, as soon as you get home for a couple of days, or if you've had you know, the baby at home, you're immediate, you immediately have like this flood of hormones that makes everyone feel real good. And I think God really designed this this way. You get huge boosts of a feel-good hormone and adrenaline, and you think you've got it all handled for about two days. And then the third and fourth day kicks in, and you find yourself in a hostage negotiation. You are in a crisis. You have a tiny tyrant living in your house, and they have three needs. They want to eat, they want to sleep, and they need to be changed. And they do it on their own schedule. They didn't come with an instruction manual. So you're on your own to decide, what does that cry mean? What do they need now? I have no idea what's happening. Babies are selfish. They're really cute, but they're selfish. We were all, we were all I mean, let's be honest. We were all babies. We were all born this way. You can ask your parents, whoever was around when you were an infant, and they'll tell you that despite how angelic you maybe once were, you probably were quite demanding yourself. This is normal. This is normal. I'm not baby bashing. But we never really outgrow that tendency. We just mask it differently. Our tantrums look different. Now they have words attached to them. In some cases, they have physicality attached to them when we don't get our way. Do you guys remember airports? <laughs> I mean, it's not a trick question. Do you remember airports? It's been a while. If you don't remember, if that memory is a little bit cloudy, let me remind you about how, you know, traveling in airports, I'm just joking. Unless you're flying like Southwest or another airline carrier that has open seating, right? Like you don't pre-plan your seat, you just show up and you get on board. Um, if you're flying just about any other carrier, even before you get to the airport, you already know which boarding group you're part of. You already know where your seat is. All these things are already decided. You have a plan. But then you get to the airport and you're in that waiting area and that steward, the, the flight attendant, the gate manager person, I can't remember what they're called, 
you can almost see them take a deep breath because they're about to start calling boarding groups and they're stealing themselves because they know as soon as they start calling a boarding group, what does everybody do? Everybody stands up. You do it too. It got real quiet. I know you stand up. And they, people start forming lines. Why do we do this? We already, the plane's not leaving without us. We're already there. We already know how we're getting on. So once you've survived kind of this push and shove to get on the plane, it's not over yet. Because that plane has to land. And you have to get off. And now instead of four lines, how many lines do you have? One. One tiny, how wide is that? Like three feet, if that? One line for everybody who thinks their vacation is more important than their seatmates, who thinks their business meeting is more important than the other person, who thinks their family reunion, who thinks their, what, their sports tournament, their whatever is more important than the people around them. And so everybody stands up and starts pushing to get down the aisle. We are infants. Our tantrums are just more sophisticated, aren't they? We're selfish people. This is true. In high-pressure situations, we nearly always immediately feel the need to serve ourselves. How do I get off first? How do I get that thing before someone else? How do I not get stepped on or left behind? This is true about people, is it not? For verse 2, you desire what you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you don't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. By pointing out that the members of the church have become driven driven by deep envy to get what they want and an ambition to serve themselves, this is causing them, James says, to kill and to quarrel and to fight. They're envious of what they see around them, and they want that thing for themselves, and so they're bickering amongst themselves and causing chaos and, and seeds of division have started to spread. Now, it doesn't say directly at all in James chapter 4 that he's actively accusing someone of murder. But he is making a very valid point of the outcomes of deep envy. And we see this all throughout the Bible. I mean, the stories are myriad, right? What happened when King David, ultimately to Uriah, when King David saw Uriah's wife and longed for her? What happened to Uriah in the end? He died. He was killed as the result of a scheme. He didn't accidentally die. I mean, like that wasn't, that wasn't nature that did that. He was planted there. It was a scheme. What happened to Abel when Cain saw that God was pouring favor upon the offering that Abel had to give? Cain killed him. He was envious of the favor. But you don't have to kill someone to end their life in order to kill and lend devastation to a relationship, do you? We talked about taming the tongue last week. You can kill and wreck relationships with your words. Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless, the reckless, that means uncaring, without caution, without thought, without care, pierce like swords. Proverbs 18, 19, a brother who has been insulted is harder to win back than a walled city, and arguments separate people like the barred gates of a palace. Whole walls get built when careless words are exchanged. Whole chasms are formed when words are loosely thrown about, aren't they? At the root of this killing of relationships, whether through murder or verbally, lies our response to not getting what we want out of life. We wanted something that we don't have. The world would have us believe that the end justifies the means. Do whatever it takes to get there, right? Whatever, whatever striving you have to do, whatever plans you have to make, whoever you have to step on, backstab, lie to, steal from, as long as in the end I get what I want, as long as in the end I win, my family comes out ahead, as long as in the end I am still in control, it was worth it. Have you ever slept well at night knowing that you have cheated somebody out of something? I mean, really. Have you ever felt peace 
about what you obtained, knowing that it wasn't honest, knowing that you didn't work for it, that you didn't study. I mean, we, we could be talking about anything, grades, right? If you cheat on a test, do you feel like that grade is yours? If you have inflated an investment because you obtained information illegally or in a way that wasn't appropriate, is that money really yours? These things don't belong to you, but you wanted that, so you took it. And there's no peace there. Not really. Not at all. You do not have because you do not ask God. Part of why these believers have found themselves in these situations where they were taking for themselves and devising their own plans is because they were too prideful to ask God. I have been too prideful to ask God for things. I have absolutely been in places where I have said the words, I believe, God, that you can fix so-and-so situation, but only I can fix my situation. I'll even say, God, thank you for providing or for healing. My friend, you're such a good God. My situation, though, that's on me. I got this. Have you ever treated your own situation, your own life circumstance, like you are your own safety net? Like you are your own parachute? Sometimes that's pride. Sometimes that's straight up doubt. You see a good thing someone else has, but you don't think it's for you. You don't believe it's for you. You stop trusting that God meant it when he said that he has plans for your life, but you withhold that willingness to submit. I have. Some of the most terrible fights, I mean terrible, hurtful, horrible fights I've ever had with the people who were closest to me have come as a result of my refusing to trust God. I've had people say, we need to be willing to walk down this road, and I'll say, that's good for you. You're on your own. I'm in charge here. I'll see you later. Send me a postcard when that doesn't work out. Truly. There's no peace there. I have never once felt peace when I have taken full control with hands tightly gripped, with my heels dug into the ground. I might look like I've had it all under control, but inside I've been whirling with tumult because I've known that there is a different way and I've refused to follow that. See, we have to, we have to remember James is writing to the Christian church. He's not writing to people that he's saying, you can trust God because God wants peace for your life. He's not trying to get people to come to know the Father. He is talking to people who have already once committed to being in relationship and who are taking back that submission. They've already experienced the goodness of God. They've already experienced wholeness and transformation and provision and miracles. And yet why are they here once again saying, I'm going to forget everything that might have happened before for myself and for other people, and I'm going to drive the ship now. James is calling out that lack of peace. 4 verse 3 says, you, do, you ask, but you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Does this feel contradictory to you? Like in verse 2, he says, you're not asking. And then in verse 3, he says, well, you're asking, but you're still not going to get it. What he's trying to say is, when you finally ask, you're not actually seeking God's will. You have broken down and finally decided, okay, it didn't work my way, so I'm going to try it your way, but it's going to come with contingencies. It's not a true request that trusts in God's provision and his desire to show you his will for your life. It comes with a menu, and you say, literally, God, if you do this, then I will do this. If you make this happen for me, then I will give you my affection. If you provide for me, then I will consider coming back to you. We pray if-then prayers. Have you ever prayed an if-then prayer? Almost like you're pulling up to Sonic and pushing the red button and spouting out your prayer, and then your answer comes out to you on roller skates. <laughs> we treat God like that. 
we pick and choose from a menu and call out a request into a void, and we only want it. We're only going to roll down our window if it comes rolling out in the exact way that we expect. If, then, prayer. These kinds of prayers aren't actually requests. They're orders. You're giving an order. You're giving an order to God. You're repackaging how you still are trying to work things out for yourself on your own. It just maybe looks prettier, maybe, on the surface. Maybe you're saying the right words, but your heart isn't fully in. You're just trying it out in a different way. You're not engaging and trusting in the Father. And God won't allow himself to be used by envy and ambition. He loves you too much. He loves you too much. He wants more for you than to be used by the order you placed out of selfish ambition. The second cause of conflict is unfaithfulness. James is going to continue with not mincing words. 4 verse 4 says, you adulterous people. That's pretty heavy hitting. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Enmity means to make an enemy of God. James specifically uses the word adulterous. This definition that is absolutely talking about unfaithfulness in a marriage. Because our closest mirror that we have to how Christ loves the church is a marriage. And what he's saying is, you have been adulterous to the covenant that you made with the Father. You took what was right in front of you, what was already yours, what was already good, and you started thinking, but maybe there's something else out here. I don't really like how this is going anymore, but that looks attractive. How about I kind of start to flirt outside of this covenant? He's calling the Christians who have come outside of the covenant of God, who have started to seek satisfaction elsewhere, who have allowed their attention to be divided, who have allowed their loyalties to be split, and he's calling them adulterous, and he's saying, don't you know that being in friendship with the world means that you have made an enemy of God? Very plain speaking. There is no allegory here. The picture is clear. Requires virtually no translation. We know what this means. We know what the church then was choosing. We know what we have been guilty of choosing now. This phrase, friendship with the world, we often think that worldliness means things like entertainment or the things we choose to watch or read or listen to or friendships and relationships that maybe aren't the best influences on us. And yeah, this, there's an element of that to that, right? It's, it's true that what we put in is what we put out, and that affects how we interact with the world around us. But James actually really does define for us what the world means, what this phrase, friendship with the world, what true worldliness is. And in the, at the end of the previous chapter, in chapter 3, remember James, the book of James was written as one letter, so he does a lot of referencing and cross referencing and reminding. So I'm going to point us to chapter 3 here real quick. And it says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about that, nor deny the truth. So neither be proud of having selfish ambition, nor deny that that's where you are. These things do not come from heaven, but it is earthly. It is of the world. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. From the world, worldliness, envy, and selfish ambition, and from there grows disorder and every evil practice. James isn't saying that we should never be friends with non-Christians. He's not saying that we shouldn't engage with the world. We're called to do this. We're called to reach our communities and the world with the gospel. We're called to engage with and impact those around us with the transforming power of the gospel. And what James is seeing in the New Testament church at the time is that no longer were they engaging with and impacting 
the world around them with the gospel. They were becoming unrecognizable from them. Are we also becoming unrecognizable to the people around us who desperately need to know the peace of God? Why would somebody who is wondering about what it looks like to surrender ever do that if your life doesn't look like that? If your life is chaotic and divisive and angry and ambitious and self-serving, you look just like them. You don't have the answer. And James is saying that is not what we're called to. We're called to be transformed. The third cause of conflict is pride. 4 verse 5 says, Do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell among us? As I was studying this particular verse, I didn't quite fully at first pass. Do we have that verse up? Thank you. Do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell among us? When you break this down in the commentary, several really wise, much smarter than I, theologians say that this verse is tricky in interpretation because it doesn't reference a specific verse. A lot of the people will say, well, we think he's talking about this, or you think he's talking about this. And finally, there's an author who says that the word scripture in the Greek, the word that's used is a formal hegraphe. And what it's meant to do is encompass the scripture as a whole. And so in the end, what it's been decided on is that James is referencing the scriptures as a whole. And that when God says he longs for the spirit that he causes to dwell among us, that he, what is being described here is the jealousy of God for your relationship with him. The most directly, this is, most, this is directly described in Exodus 25 when God commanded the Israelites to not worship other gods. You will have no other gods before me, for I am a jealous God. Sometimes we think of gods as being things, right? Items, money, people. Sometimes our gods are ourselves. We want to give offerings to ourselves. We want to sacrifice to ourselves. We want to lift ourselves up so that we continue to pat ourselves on the back and stand on our own abilities. But God says, you will have no other gods before me, not even yourself, for I am a jealous God. He is jealous for you. We sing this in that song. He is jealous for me, right? He is jealous to have your undivided loyalty. He is jealous to be in communion with you. He is jealous for your love. He both longs for and is fiercely protective of you. He loves you incredibly. If he wasn't singularly faithful and loyal to you, to the, to, to the thought that you could once again be reconciled to him, singularly focused, he would never have sacrificed his most precious son for you so that you could then turn around and pick and choose which parts of a relationship with God that you want to have. We're already transformed. Why are we reverting to that? It's your pride that keeps you separate from God. Chapter 3, right? Pride is the root of sin and conflict. It was pride that caused Satan and the angels to fall from heaven. They wanted to be like gods. No longer did they want to fall into submission and honor God as the ultimate authority. Lucifer said, you're not better than me. I want to be like you. And he rallied some angels, and we all know how that ended, right? It was pride that caused the fall in the garden. There was temptation at play, sure. But what was whispered seductively, you can be like God. You can be more than what you were made for. You can, you can be more. You can be just like God. And then we had the fall. That pride rose up, and that causes division. He opposes your unfaithfulness. In his holiness, he opposes your selfishness. 
In his holiness, he opposes your pride. You can't hold on to those things and hold on to God and expect them to unmesh. He is holy and righteous. And he is full of grace. Here's when we can take a deep exhale. I mean, I'm telling you, James really is putting us through our paces, isn't he? You know, inhale together, exhale together, because some good news is coming. I know this is a serious one. I said, Pastor Brent, why did you give me this one? And he was like, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> James 4, 6 says, he gives more grace. Not just grace. Not grace three times, not grace until X, not grace unless you do this. He gives more grace. It is abundant. And that is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. You will always be in conflict with your relationships, in your church, in your ministry, in your work, in your neighborhood, with your kids, in your marriage, with your families. You will be in conflict with God if you are insisting on putting you first. If you are insisting that you come before the needs of other people. If you are insisting on muscling your own way over and over again. Who cares about the devastation? Why don't I feel close to God? I've heard this say a lot. I think we've all said this. Like, what is happening? Why don't I feel close to God? There might be people who talk to you and say, you know, I once felt close to God, but I don't anymore. I don't hear him speak to me. I don't know what he wants from me. I feel alone. I feel left aside and forgotten. I once had a closeness with God, and it's not there anymore. What happened? Where did he go? Nowhere. You moved. You let some pride get into that relationship. You inflated your ego and it caused some division. We don't speak openly with the relationships in our lives if there are roadblocks in the way. We can't expect to hear clearly from God if there are roadblocks in the way that we put there, that we insist on holding on to. Our refusal to trust God to provide what we need and to search out what he wants for us, to insist on getting what we want and doing it our own way, these are all acts of pride, and as we attempt to be gods in our own lives, we are rejecting God himself, the God, the God of all. We are saying that we would rather be gods in our own lives than for God, actual God, almighty God, powerful God, to be who we follow and trust and pursue. We are rejecting him. And because God is holy and jealous for you, in your pride you will always feel in opposition. We talked about how they don't enmesh. God will not force himself where you don't want him. He's not a puppet master. You're not a marionette dangling at the end of a string. You don't just surrender your life and then just like cease to be a person without free will. It's the beauty of the ability to worship is that we can choose that. But the opposite of that, then, is that we also have the ability to set our relationship with God on the back burner, to be disloyal and unfaithful. 4.6 is a great reminder that God is full of grace and more grace and will not reject us. But he opposes your pride and is looking for humility. If we want to feel closeness with God, if we want to hear his voice, to be able to listen to what he's directing next for us, and to feel peace in our hearts, regardless of the circumstances that are around us, we need to be humble. We need to be willing to lower ourselves and set down our expectations of what we want God to be. We need to pursue submission. Because submission brings peace. Verse 7 says, submit yourselves then to God. Submission isn't a very easy concept. As Americans, submission is especially a difficult concept, right? I mean, let's, let's remember in American history, we fought a whole war 
so as not to have to be subject to the governance of another monarchy, didn't we? At the root of our DNA is we will not be under the control and rule of someone else. We want our freedom. Submission in our context means that we will not show weakness, right? That we will not be taken advantage of, that we will not bow down to anybody, that we are in charge of our own destinies, that we are the masters of our lives. It is hard when, a wor when the world places high value on strength, independence, self-sufficiency, and power to just set that aside, to be submissive. We're instructed to bring our wills under God's control and to recognize that God's way is what's best for our lives. But some of us are still holding on. We're holding on to the idea of what we want because we've authored that for ourselves. We're holding on to the thought that if we get what we have orchestrated, what we have planned, then we'll feel peace. You're waiting until you feel peace before you submit. But can I tell you, if you're waiting until you feel peace, you will never actually feel peace. Because God is calling you to lay down that strife and that struggle and that self-authorship and to submit to the good, the good and whole things that he has for you. And in that, you will feel peace. We must let go and be willing to yield to the will and authority of God. And as a church, together, we don't do that alone. We come alongside each other and remind each other of the importance of the pursuit of submission as a body because we don't walk this alone, do we? You are very much shoulder to shoulder with other believers who are also, until God calls us home, you are on a path that you've been called to be salt and light in the world, be a transforming influence in your life. So in that, to be effective in that, to make a difference, to call other people into a relationship with Jesus, we need to reflect that transformation, pursue submission, and encourage each other in that pursuit. We don't do this alone. Not in this church, not in other churches around us, not in the context of the global capital C church. Each of us brings something to the table, a different ability, a different expertise, right? We all have different backgrounds. We weren't all born in the same hospital, in the same city, in the same neighborhood. We all do different things, don't we? We're uniquely and wonderfully made, specifically by the Father, in his image, but entirely unique. And it's easy to uh, get that, that, that uniqueness conflated and, and confused with individualism. In college, I had the opportunity to, to be part of my university's choir and orchestra. And I've got a, a picture of that up here. This is a uh, real grainy. I took it in 2006 on a Nikon point and shoot. Do you guys remember those? <laughs> Tiny. The other day, Gavin, my son Gavin asked us, he had heard about a Palm Pilot, and he was like, what's a Palm Pilot? And Brent and I had to tell him, well, once upon a time, in order to like leave the house, we had to do, we had to carry like four or five things with us. A PDA, a flip cell phone, uh, what else? A digital camera, and he just looked at us like, Stone Ages, my parents are from the Stone Ages. <laughs> and it made me remember about how apparently like really young kids today are referencing like the late 1980s and 90s as just the 1900s. <laughs> the 1900s. I'm going to blow some dust off my joints here. The 1900s. So this picture was taken in 2006, but I think you can kind of see that there's, you know, a, a whole college choir, and then there's an orchestra down there. And I really loved this experience. It's still just is such a precious memory to me because it brought together all kinds of people with all kinds of abilities, singers, musicians, of all kinds, of all levels, people who had worked really hard to be uh, able to come together and produce this sound. And if you were to walk into a concert hall in the five minutes before a concert, it would sound like absolute chaos. You would think that they had just handed us our instruments and told us to go bang on them for a while. Have you ever been in a room where like an orchestra is, is warming up? There's like scales and different keys and, and there's vocalists kind of doing their, their weird 
duck lip stretching things so they can enunciate really clearly and, and things are sliding around. If, if you walked in there, you would probably be like, uh, this is maybe a little too experimental for me. Goodbye, if we left it like that. But that's not what it was meant to be, right? Those are individual aspects of something that were ready to come together to form something. And in the moment, across the stage would walk my director, and you could feel the hush fall over the choir risers in the orchestra pit. And you could almost sense that we were beginning to breathe together in anticipation of what was to come. And she would silently walk across the stage and lift her baton for the downbeat, and we would lean forward. And there'd be a collective intake of breath because we were all cued in, ready to submit our individual abilities and talents and things that we were called to do so that the master, this conductor, could form a beautiful piece of work. We're being called to take the things that we already have and the things we can already do and come alongside our fellow believers and submit collectively so that the Father can form a masterpiece. So how do we live in submission? We know why we have conflict. We know what to do about that conflict. We know that, you know, the, that the, 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 the prescription to conflict is submission and trust. So how do we live in submission? How do we get to that place? We submit by resisting. Verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We've already learned from our very brief visit into James chapter 3 that envy, pride, and self-ambition roots and cements envy, uh, disorder, and every evil thing. So we must be ready to resist. We must actively be ready to resist Ephesians 5 tells us to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes, James 4, 7, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is not a passive instruction. The devil is out there to steal, kill, and destroy. If you knew that your enemy was out there ready to absolutely destroy you, would you lie passively? James tells us to get up, to move, to resist and we already know how to arm ourselves. So we, we submit by resisting. We submit by resisting temptation. We submit by resisting the seduction that is being presented to us as a good thing, but really isn't. Second, we submit by moving. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. This is a beautiful promise. If you come near to God, he will come near to you. By coming near to God, by taking even one step forward, you are actively leaving behind what was pulling you away, aren't you? And what does it promise you here in James 4? If you move to God, what will God do? Move towards you. What incredible grace that is. That's amazing. We submit by repenting. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you thought James was done calling names, he is not. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter. I think we've got this verse. Thank you. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James is calling us to address and identify and name and not take lightly the sin that we have in our lives. Sin is not a laughing matter. He says, change your joy to gloom, your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. If you have sin in your life that you are actively in support of, if you think it's not that big of a deal, that this is something that is keeping you separate from God, I've got news for you. It's a big deal. And James is saying, you have to treat it like the big deal that it is, because then when you recognize that it is a very big deal, that it is separating you from feeling peace, it is separating you from being in communion with the Father, then you can feel the full weight of God's grace and what that feels like when he then comes rushing in. 
It's amazing. God's grace is amazing. We've been transformed. We have been transformed. So let's live like we've been transformed. Let's make that recognizable that that has happened in our lives and not treat it like a small thing when we flirt outside of the bounds of that relationship. In the Greek language, these 10 commands in verses 8 through 10 indicate that they're not suggestions. James isn't gently saying, if this isn't working, you should try this. Or, you know, I mean, that sounds like this, so maybe this could be the choice. The words he uses are imperative. They are actionable, fitting for a military command. He is calling the church to an awareness that says, this is critical to you feeling peace in your life. It is critical that you are vigilant about protecting that peace. It's not something we toy with. I, this feels contradictory to me, this idea that we have to contend for peace. But isn't it true that peace is not brought about without vigilance? It's not protected and maintained without awareness. We have to be vigilant about protecting and establishing the boundaries of our thought lives. What are you exposing yourself to? What are you allowing yourself to be influenced by? Is it good? Is it pure? Does it give God glory? If it doesn't, that should be taken a second look as to whether or not that belongs in your repertoire because it threatens otherwise the peace that you feel. Be vigilant about remaining in the word so that you are armed and ready. Ephesians 5, this is daily. Be vigilant about being in the word. The word of God doesn't return void. The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. The word of God is your protection. Do you know it? Do you study it? Is it your first response when there's an issue in your life? What does the Bible say about this? We already have the ability to study and discern what it is that God wants for us. Is it our first choice? It should be. 